So guys, last time Natalie covered the case of Reality Winner, and I was like, oh, I'll cover the case of Chelsea Manning, like, that'll be so interesting. And then I started to read through it, and I was like, this is just way too much for me to, to handle at, with the time <laughs> that I have now. <laughs> also too, I would love, I, I might ask like Becca to weigh in on that case, because I feel like there's so much I'm missing out on in terms of the laws, and I feel like my understanding of like espionage or, or whatever is very limited. So I also too just don't think that I would do an adequate job of covering it right now. It's not um, a scam. So nonetheless, I decided, I was like, all right, what kind of theme can I like pick out of this, this case? And when we were talking, we were discussing the treatment of women in prison, specifically like mental health treatment. So Along those lines, I was like, okay, I can I can do something with this. So I decided to cover cases of one slice, small, small slice of healthcare that is specific to women inmates. So pregnancy in prison. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. Welcome to Pink Collar, a true crime podcast focusing on crimes committed exclusively by women. Each week, we'll be bringing you a brand new case focusing on the psychology behind these crimes and advocating for early intervention. Please subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For every review, we will donate a dollar to the National Center for Victims of Crime. I'm sure we'll revisit this, but just given a little taste, given a little start. So I actually um, pulled most of my information from an article from The Guardian written by Lori Teresa Yearwood titled Pregnant and Shackled, Why Inmates Are Still Giving Birth Cuffed and Bound. Um, so unfortunately, there are many, many cases of women in prison giving birth while shackled. <laughs> So, Natalie, before we started recording, was like, oh, are you covering the case of the woman in Colorado? Like, unfortunately, no, because there's so, there's so many. many cases. So I will be talking about the cases specifically covered by Lori and then kind of sprinkling in some of my own fun, fun facts. Not so fun facts, actually. Very not fun facts. Um, so the article started off profiling the case of Sophia Cassius. So Sophia was arrested after shoplifting while she was in her third trimester. Sophia was facing a heroin addiction, and while some can find it very difficult to be sympathetic towards someone who's using drugs while pregnant, please consider that addiction is a disease. There is no easy way out of addiction, but it's safe to say that shaming someone for their illness is not going to encourage anyone to stop using. So check your bias. Um, 
but while seven months pregnant, Sophia recalled her hands being cuffed and her feet being bound while she was shuffled across the floor of the Baxter County Adult Detention Center in San Antonio, Texas in March of 2017. A guard stood in front of her, holding the chain connected to her handcuffs. Sophia was having a difficult time keeping balance and ended up falling to the wet cement floor. She was on the ground, sobbing, feeling like she wasn't able to breathe because she was freaking out, understandably. Being chained brought up flashbacks to when she experienced sexual abuse at the hands of multiple family members as a child. After she fell, a female guard grabbed her by the hair in an attempt to pull her off the ground, screaming, get up, B-word. She remembers the guard saying, this is what happens when you are an effing junkie. You shouldn't be using drugs or you wouldn't be in here. Oh my God. Which is just so disappointing. Like no matter what I feel like you should treat no matter what a person's doing, you should treat them like a person. Even if someone is like a super murderer, serial killer, I don't think it's the job of the guards to be screaming insults at them. Yeah. I think that's just not something you should do. No matter what. It's like, treat just them, don't. Treat them you don't like have to people. compliment them. Yeah. But you. Treat Don't. them like human beings. Like, this is a job at the end of the day that you signed up for. Like, as Well, right. Much... If you worked retail and you said that to someone, you'd be fired. So, yeah. like, as and much as I And some people in retail like deserve to... to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> they deserve to be put in their place. <laughs> no, you can't use this coupon. What are you, an animal? <laughs> um, yeah, I just don't... Or, you know, grabbing someone by their hair. If they're pregnant, putting them in cuffs. I don't know. I don't know. So unfortunately, Sophia's experience is common among people who are incarcerated while pregnant. The Guardian also interviewed Harriet Davis, who was once an inmate at the California Institute for Women in Corona. Hashtag triggered. (laughs) This was written pre-pandemic. When she had given birth to her daughter 36 years before she was interviewed for this article. While in labor, the doctor requested the guards remove her shackles to allow the baby to travel more easily down the birth canal, even reassuring the guard she's not going anywhere. Because, like, even if you're a flight risk, if you're actively squeezing a baby out of you, how far are you really going to get? Like, also... (laughs) Like, well, so maybe you'll get into this, but, like, do, like, women who give birth while incarcerated, sorry, people who give birth while incarcerating, um, do they not have the option for epidurals? Because if you do have an epidural, you're literally not going anywhere. I have no idea. I I do not know. Okay. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, you, you would think. Um, so Harriet had been imprisoned for voluntary manslaughter of her abuser. Um, again, going back to should this person even have been incarcerated in the first place? We, I mean, if it was 36, maybe close to 40 years ago, if you factor in the time when this article was written, we certainly have a better understanding of trauma and abuse and how it can impact a person. We've certainly covered cases about, you know, it's it's difficult for if people don't see that you're an active 
danger, even if you've suffered repeated abuse where you did fear for your life, mm-hmm. that sometimes juries will convict you anyway because they just don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Even if you weren't actively, like, they weren't choking you in that moment, maybe that's the only way that you can defend yourself or escape safely from that situation. So it's not uncommon for someone to kill their abuser while their abuser is asleep or otherwise incapacitated. Um, so she was not that being said she was not a risk to others she had killed this man because they were abusing her mm-hmm. so she wasn't just trying to do it for fun so she stated uh it's inhumane and not necessary and emotionally and mentally unhealthy to have someone be shackled while they're giving birth which is already a traumatic experience and can you imagine then not being able to move freely or to just I would imagine that you would be afraid of like what the doctor might think of you or the nurses might think of you or any passerby what they would think of you. Um, She was able to get the constraints removed an hour before giving birth, but oftentimes labor lasts a little bit longer than an hour. (laughs) So here's my two cents. So the only reason someone should be shackled is if they are like actively a risk to themselves or others so like in this moment are they going to if they are not handcuffed are they going to seriously harm or injure someone else uh or the thing is too if you argue that like hey this person giving birth is a flight risk i think it's not like completely unheard of that someone might give birth and like run away from the hospital is it likely probably not but again aren't there other measures that can be employed can't they have someone sitting outside of the room to make sure that this person doesn't escape then Mm. it's just there should be other things explored and unless like that person is going to literally strangle the doctor while they are giving birth are the the cuffs necessary i think not um But another woman, Danielle Edwards, was in county jail when another inmate had threatened her, and Danielle ended up being put in 22-hour isolation while pregnant, which putting someone in isolation we know can be very damaging to their mental health, especially if someone is pregnant and maybe doesn't have as easy of an access to like wave down a guard if there's something going wrong or two just the stress of that i think can do immense damage to your body and especially too if you're like growing another human inside of you not ideal so she was brought to court hearings and doctor's appointments in handcuffs and leg irons she said she had to wear multiple pairs of socks to prevent the metal from cutting her skin which again is like a huge safety risk if she got her skin cut if she was like exposed to infection for whatever reason because of those cuts on her skin that is just so dangerous and concerning she said it's all very confining uncomfortable and cold you and it's scary because when you when your feet have that limited mobility you don't know if you're going to misstep and fall on your stomach I think, yeah, probably your balance would be, like, kind of thrown off if you had, like, a giant baby in your stomach. So, especially being, like, shackled is not easy to walk around, and I imagine you're, like, front-loaded with your weight, so more likely to, like, fall over and potentially harm the baby. 
So, Danielle was fully shackled when she stood in front of a judge in Walton County, Georgia, a few months before the House Bill 345 was passed, preventing shackling in the second trimester through six weeks postpartum. Is when she was going through all this. So it's it's very sad that it was just like a couple of, of months that she was off. But Danielle's story is sad again, unfortunately not unfamiliar. She was jailed for possession of methamphetamines and had one prior arrest for drug possession. Mm-hmm. While she was in talking to the judge, she discussed she was using drugs to fight off the pain. Her grandfather passed away when she was five years old. She was later sexually assaulted and also in her adult life had found herself in an abusive relationship. Um, So this article itself didn't detail too much about her relationship with her grandfather, but I imagine that she was very close with her grandfather, maybe more so than um, like a typical relationship with a grandfather. I mean, no matter what, that's really sad happening at at any age, but Mm -hmm. I wonder it, it... it made it kind of seem like her grandfather was more directly involved with her care and maybe served more of, like, a parental role. Yeah, and also it's very possible that, like, before his passing, like, there was no additional trauma or abuse or anything else that she... True, or, yeah, we don't have information about how her grandfather passed away. I think if you lose a family member in a very traumatic way, like, not... Like, if your family member's, like, murdered or dies. Yeah, and, yeah. If it's not, you know, obviously losing someone no matter what is sad, but if it's, you know, old age versus a very sudden, uh, kind of unpredictable, death can be very, can affect someone in a different way. But, um, two, it's sad that... Danielle was doing everything she could to fight her addiction, but uh, after her grandfather's wife died, she jumped right back into the drugs. So Danielle was begging this judge to send her to rehab instead of prison because she wanted to do whatever was possible to keep her baby after birth, which, of course, like, I think it's like an unfair punishment to the child to separate them from their mother if there is any way possible to keep them together. Um, Also, too, you have to consider how a judge may be biased by seeing someone in shackles and prison garb versus if they were to see a mother wearing plain clothes and just, like, asking, please, can you send me to rehab? Um, So I think it's important, too, to consider the perception of seeing someone you may even be inclined to be more judgmental towards a a woman in shackles because you may think like oh how could she do this to her child or Mm -hmm. you know it's important things to think about and two i think if someone is asking to be sent to rehab instead of prison if take advantage of that if they are in a place where they're open to receiving treatment, people aren't always in a place where they're open to receiving treatment, even if they are arrested and imprisoned. So do what you can. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, but she reported, the judge said, do you think I'm actually going to let you walk out of this courtroom? Absolutely not. Okay. So 
In December of 2018, the First Step Act was passed, prohibiting some of the punitive measures against prisoners, including shackling pregnant prisoners during pregnancy and for a period after, with exceptions. So that, to me, I think is worded very vaguely, like with exceptions. So can you can you just say anything then as an exception? Like, I, I don't don't know if I love that. Don't know. I mean, it's a step in the right direction, but I guess it's called a first, the first step. (laughs) But to me, it seems like there needs to be a lot more specification there about like, unless they are an active risk to themselves or others. Um, This federal law, unfortunately, only did the bare minimum in terms of protecting prisoners. There was nothing to address the use of solitary confinement against pregnant people or the inadequate provision of OBGYN care. The act also required the Federal Bureau of Prisons to provide menstrual products to people at no extra charge. However, access to these products is still an issue as they can set arbitrary quotas on supplies in prisons. So even though it might be free, you might only get one pad a day or a week or I don't know. Um, Yeah, supposedly, I mean, this is something I'd love to cover too later down the line and kind of what inspired this is there's like a group of women who have previously been incarcerated that like do YouTube videos. (laughs) I think I've talked about this before, but they do like, uh, they did like prison meals where they would make like all the stuff they used to make in prison, but also too like talked about their experiences and how they ended up incarcerated I know one in particular definitely gave birth while in prison and just talked about how horrible the experience was. And um, luckily she's reunited with her her kiddo. Um, I'd love to to cover that on, on a separate date. But they talk about how like the pads that they get are these like obscenely large like diapers. They like didn't give you tampons and like was just horrible like who uses those how uncomfortable and i feel like every person's experience with like the type of products they need is so different that like Mm -hmm. there's not a one size fits all and you certainly like think about how scary it would be to not like oh i only have one pad left but i have a couple days left in my period so like what am i gonna do um or, like, they don't even let them have, like, tampons in some prisons, which is just, you know, not everyone <laughs> loves that feeling. So, um, so they, I feel like if they don't already, they should provide women with menstrual cups in prison. But also, too, I think it would be hard to keep those sanitary, so I don't know about the implications of that, but certainly as, like, a, a different option. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think anybody wants to wear a huge, like, diaper pad. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I'm sure some people do. If you right. are someone who does, that's great. But, I mean, we... It's good every, to have options. Yeah, everyone has That's what makes you feel most comfortable. Yeah, and everyone's, you know, menstrual cycle and flow and stuff is different. And that requires different types of products. So, also too, if, what they need. Right. If you're pregnant and you're experiencing, and or this could happen to like any woman at any time in their life, just experiencing bleeding at like different times of the month outside of like, I don't know if they provide you with extra products to compensate yeah. or if you only get like one week out of the month. I don't know yeah. how all that works. Um, 
So they can set quotas, like I said. Also, the act is not ending policies that deny or delay laundry privileges or a change of clothes to someone that has bled through their clothing. Yeah, so just deal with it, I guess. Um, So some more information about women in prison and, you know, touching on, on mental health, because this also, too, could be like 10,000 other cases in itself, but according to an article from the Marshall Project, while women make up only 7% of the prison population, 66% of women in prison reported having a history of a mental disorder. This is almost twice the percentage of men in prison. Now, this comes from self-report data uh, in the senior policy advisor at the National Alliance for Mental Illness, Ron Honberg stated, I have never seen a study that establishes the reason for this. Because of that, we can only speculate. But I believe one factor is that incarcerated women have experienced sexual trauma uh, before their imprisonment at a much higher rate than men. They are also more inclined to report psychological distress to the prison mental health services than male inmates. So it is possible that there's reasons why there could be a higher rate in women and also too it may be just a case of higher reporting among women because it's less stigmatized, I feel like, for a woman to discuss mental health concerns than it is for men and too, especially men in prison. I'm sure that there is a lot of benefit to be being seen as very like macho. Um, you don't want to be seen as weak by other people. So possible, possible things. It's not a a perfect measure, Um, but the Bureau of Justice Statistics found a disparity between inmates of different races. So more than half of the white people in prison of both sexes reported a diagnosis of a mental disorder. This is double the rate for um, Hispanics and more than 1.6 times higher than black people in prison. So again, this does not mean that there's more mental illness in white people. Many measures for mental illness, even the psychology bible, the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders is very culturally biased and very biased in terms of uh, gender and sex. So literally, (laughs) this made me think of you, Natalie, when I was uh, studying for my exam. It's like transvestic disorder is still a thing where it's like, oh, if you like wearing clothing of the opposite gender, to be fair, (laughs) um, in my exam, it was like not saying that it's wrong to feel that way. It was just like, oh, address the anxiety that can come with like having this disorder and other people's perceptions of it and i think that's generally like gender dysphoria is something that is in the dsm and what was so we had someone actually thinking back to my grad school days we had someone who specialized in lgbtq plus treatment that came in and said actually it's not a bad thing or well Not that it's not a bad thing overall, but here's how we make use of gender dysphoria. We can use that to bill for insurance so people can get the care that they need for, um, like, mental health services if they are questioning their uh, gender identity. Or exploring, I guess, rather, exploring their gender, gender identity. But that goes to say, should that be technically a disorder or should 
it just be like, oh, we should provide care for people who are exploring their identity. So mixed, mixed thoughts there. But that to be said, the measure itself is very biased in many ways and has certainly not kept up with changes in society or differences in, in culture. So, yeah, I don't even think society is really keeping up with changes in society. <laughs> but, well, yeah, I think it takes, like, a, a new DSM only comes out, like, once every couple of years, and there's so much, like, debate that goes back and forth that it just is moving at a snail's pace. The current DSM, I think it's from 2013. Right, something um, like that. And, like, they're coming out with a new version I think like I think it's already to print but like next year and it has like one slight change like I think they've added like <laughs> bereavement disorder or something like it's very the, the, all this is a change is very very slow in this it's hard field. yeah there's just so much up against any change to be made which you would hope in this field that things would move along a little bit quicker but it don't. So, yes, certainly. And two, that's, I think, something that I did not include in this article, but it's if there is a white male who is experiencing, like, concerns, it is more likely that they'll be sent to, like, a mental health counselor versus people of color are more likely to be sent to uh, solitary confinement, which is concerning, and I don't think that's great um so lots of work lots of work to be done there and then also too as i mentioned earlier in the cases of, of two of these women substance abuse is obviously something that is a concern so currently the treatment with or treatment with methadone and buprenorphine are the standard of care for opioid use disorder and pregnancy according to the national institute on drug abuse it has been shown to reduce prenatal withdrawal improve neonatal outcomes increase maternal hiv treatment to reduce the likelihood of transmitting the virus to the fetus and links mothers with better prenatal care so yes, in a perfect world, there would be no crossover between addiction and pregnancy, but if telling people not to use drugs worked, then there would be no drug use. So we have to be a little bit more creative and understanding about how we go about treating. And in my opinion, the harm reduction model is the superior model right now. What can we do to reduce stigma? What can we do to make people feel comfortable? To How can we make treatment accessible so that people aren't getting to the point where they're being arrested? How do we make it so that it's easier for people to access care and to not have to rely on prison systems to also, well, I would say provide addictions treatment. <laughs> Realistically, you know, to not really provide addictions treatment. <laughs> Also, too, um, 
in cases of addictions and pregnancy, it's not always as simple as like, oh, just stop using in some cases with um, alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder. It's unsafe to just stop use altogether and withdrawal from um, those substances can kill you. And so I can imagine too that that withdrawal from those substances can affect your child if you are pregnant. So it is better to be connected with a doctor if you are doing, you know, if you're making any changes and to just, you know, again, find that harm reduction. Like what's the safest way for us to achieve this goal? So we need to rise to the occasion and treat the issues we are currently facing. And the best way to do that, again, in my opinion, is harm reduction. So yes some facts about so the theme i guess of this past couple of weeks is treatment or lack thereof in prisons yes so yeah i'm sure this is something that we'll revisit a lot but within cases and and yeah certainly things that we've already covered but this is just sort of like a a taste of uh, healthcare in prison and mental health care in prison. Um, Which, and much like the rest of the country, is negligible at best. <laughs> you love to see it. But I think it's important, especially to, you know, I think true crime podcasts can sometimes just focus on, like, the, like, not to say that we're perfect in, in any means. The whole, like, true crime thing is a controversial topic in itself. But also, too, I think it's important to, like, take a look at all aspects of what's going on with crime and this is a very important one Mm -hmm. i think our end goal in life is just to have everybody be healthy and safe and i don't think that someone loses their privilege to being healthy and safe just because they've committed a crime or they lose their humanity or two like the baby didn't commit a crime so (laughs) especially if you're anti-choice then shouldn't you be very much arguing for like the protection and and safety of fetuses you would think you would think but who knows (laughs) anyway so that's all i have for you cool awesome great double episode double it's not a double episode you guys don't know what i'm talking about not double for you (laughs) (laughs) actually i would imagine this one will probably come out first and then we'll do the the jury so keep watch out for next week as we discuss women and juries Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.